look there at 331, it's uh, Psalm 27.1 and Isaiah 41.10. We're going to say it out loud in unison together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Bibles, please, to Esther chapter 2 this morning. Esther chapter 2, as we continue uh, the series we started uh, last week. Sorry, let me get this mic on. Esther chapter 2. And in my study and preparations in an average week for our time together on Sundays, I usually end up reading uh, quite a bit. And uh, one of the books that I referenced for today uh, was written by a lady by the name of Diane Tidball. And I want you to see the title of the book. The title of the book is Esther, a true first lady, but don't miss the subtitle, a post-feminist icon in a secular world. I talk about a mouthful. Uh, Maybe I should have called the series that, huh? Esther, a true first lady, a post-feminist icon in a secular world. Well, we didn't choose that. Uh, We chose for such a time as this. But I want you to hear what uh, she wrote uh, in uh, one of the sections in her book. This is um, a lady by the name of Diane Tidball. She said the Bible is a real book about real people in real situations for real people living real lives. Let me say that again. The Bible is a real book about real people in real situations for real people living real lives. It is a hard hitting book. It doesn't pull any punches and it faces up to the issues such as promiscuous lifestyles that are in our media daily. She said the Bible has an authentic message, but too often that message has been blunted and lost. It's lost its cutting edge and its ability and power to speak to real people. Why? 
Well, the blame must lie with the teachers of the Bible who can, with a great number of good intentions, present a cozy, warm story that fails to touch people. It is too easy to gloss over the tough message of the Bible and not not allow it to speak to us directly and relevantly about the work in which we live. And I think she's absolutely correct. And I share that with you because we come to Esther chapter two. And no matter how hard you try, this part of the story is not neat and tidy. In fact, in some regards, it's absolutely shocking and it's appalling and it's unsettling. At the very least, it's difficult in many ways. You know, a lot of us who want our Bible characters to be a lot like Mary Poppins, you know, practically perfect uh, in every way. But then you come to a story like this and you come to a chapter like this and we are reminded that none of them are perfect. And then we're reminded that they're humans like us and we forget that the only perfect uh, human uh, is the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody else falls short. And so we find that with Esther and Mordecai and Moses and David and the rest of the Bible characters. But that's good in a sense, is it not? Because it reminds us that they're just like us and there are lessons in their lives we can apply to our lives. And there's only one perfect human, and that's the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to give you some important reminders before we read the passage today, before we jump into Esther chapter two, to kind of set the stage, because it is a difficult passage of scripture, to say the least. Let me give you uh, four or five things here real quickly to keep in mind as we study today. Number one, I want you to remember this, that this takes place in Medo-Persia in the 400s, not in America in 2016. Okay. This takes place in the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire in the 400s, quite a long time ago, not in America in 2016. So don't read our culture back into theirs. Okay. Secondly, remember that this is a monarchy we're talking about, not a democracy. This is a monarchy. The king is in charge. What the king wants is what the king gets. So keep that in mind. Thirdly, keep this in mind. The people that we're reading about where they were living their lives like we're living ours in real time. They're living in real time. Uh, they didn't have the luxury that we have. We can read the end of the story. They were living the story. They were in the midst of it. Uh, just like there's coming a day if the Lord Jesus doesn't come for us uh, before then, where we're all going to, to meet death and people look back on our lives. And they'll know our end from our beginning. They'll understand our life. Well, but right now we're doing what? We can't see the end because we're living in real time. So keep that in mind as we study. These are important before we read the chapter, before we get into the chapter. Fourthly, remember that the author, that is the Holy Spirit ultimately, didn't choose to answer every question that we might have. Uh, we're going to probably leave here today from chapter two and have some questions and we're not going to be sure of the answers. But the Holy Spirit did give us exactly and perfectly what he desired for us to have. And so we rest in that. And then fifth, this is a very important one. I don't want you to forget this one. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback. What I mean by that is I can go on this afternoon and I can yell at Cam Newton on TV all I want. And I might do that, but I'm not the one playing the game. I'm where I should be in my recliner, relaxing, watching him play, who's out there grinding it out. Uh, we must be careful to reserve judgment concerning Esther, to reserve judgment concerning Mordecai. Be careful with that because we are not in their sandals. We weren't in their sandals. We were not living their life in this time, in this place. And we don't have all the details 
concerning this story. So keep in mind that it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. So remind yourself of that as we study, because you'll possibly want to jump to some conclusions and some judgments as we read through this passage together uh, as we go throughout our message, Esther chapter 2. Now, I think if we'll remember all those things, those five things, we can find, find a very wonderful, profitable time in the Word of God. Well, let me set the stage for you where we are. If you look in chapter 2, the very opening words are after these things. After these things. Well, that comes naturally after chapter 1. And we studied chapter 1 last week. And we saw that Queen Vashti, you have King Ahasuerus. His queen name is uh, Queen Vashti. And uh, she's been demoted. Uh, she's uh, been put out of being queen. She uh, did not obey the king's command. She didn't please the king. Uh, the king listened to the counsel of his advisors while he was uh, drunk with wine. And he said, no more will she come within my presence. I let somebody else uh, take the place of her as queen. And that happened according to chapter one, verse three, in the third year of King Ahasuerus reign. Now, when we get to the end of this chapter, chapter two, verse 16, we find that we're in the seventh year of King Ahasuerus reign. So we have third year in chapter one, seventh year in chapter two. So the question is, what happened during those four years? Well, the Bible tells us part of the story and history, I think, tells us the rest of the story. At home, the Bible reminds us and tells us, we'll see today, preparations are being made for a beauty contest in many ways. And they're preparing some ladies to go in and to appear before the king and so forth. And we'll get to that in a moment. The historians tell us what was going on outside the pages of Scripture. The king of Hazarerus, known in history as Xerxes, was going to go to battle against the Greeks. And history tells us that he failed miserably. He's defeated. And we're not sure how all the chronology lines up during these four years. Um, we don't know exactly where it all lands. But the more I thought about all this, the more I realized that we're really given uh, four snapshots in this passage. Uh, four snapshots of life in this passage. And I want to go through these four snapshots with you. So more than likely during those four years from chapter one to chapter into chapter two, there's beauty preparations being made at home. King Xerxes is waging war and losing to the Greeks abroad. And then we have what the Bible reveals to us. So let's look at four snapshots. You know, a snapshot doesn't give you the full picture. It doesn't show everything. It shows you a moment in time and a section of that moment. And so let's look at first of all the first snapshot. I want you to notice a life without the Lord, verses one through four. A life without the Lord, verses one through four. Now remember, King Ahasuerus is an ungodly man. Keep that in mind as you study the book. He's an ungodly man. And notice verse one. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, some scholars think that this is a king of Hazarerus. He's already been defeated by the Greeks and he's come home and he's sulking and he's depressed and he's down in the dumps. And he needs his wife to comfort him. And he remembers Queen Vashti, but he remembers that he's put her aside. And some say, well, you know, maybe that's not what happened. It's going to happen right after he got rid of her and then he got sad. Then he went to war and so forth. We don't really know. But the point is, it doesn't really matter. What matters, we're given a picture of a very miserable king here. And remember, when the king ain't happy, happy, ain't nobody happy. And it seems that King Ahasuerus here is filled with regret. Uh, He made a decree when he was drunk with wine. He made a decree, but now he's sober. And his advisors are sensing a very delicate situation here. When the king is not happy, things in the kingdom are up in the air. 
And when they originally disposed of Queen Vashti, look back at chapter 1, verse 19. It says, if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. So what's the end of chapter 1, verse 19? And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And so it's time to put that plan into work. They put aside Vashti. It's time to find another one. And what they do here is they have a miserable king on their hands and they appeal to his lust. They appeal to his lust. Look at chapter two again. Verse two. Chapter two, verse two. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And it says this thing pleased the king. And he did so. Now, King Ahasuerus doesn't know Jehovah. He's not a follower of God. He tries to fill his desires, his desire for satisfaction, ultimately, with women and booze and military conquest and the like. And so many in our world today follow in his footsteps, beloved. They try everything and anything to fill the void of their life and the lack of satisfaction, the lack of purpose. And like a king of Hazarus, they try alcohol. Uh, many try drugs and sex and power. Uh, rising in their careers, money, anything to meet the deepest longings of their heart. Trying to find satisfaction, trying to find purpose, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find that that can only be found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they appeal to this man who's there filled with regret and they appeal to his lust and they propose a beauty contest. Did you notice the perimeters of the contest and what the things were all about? The contestants had to meet three requirements. They had to be young. They had to be beautiful and they had to be virgin. Those were the three requirements. Young, beautiful virgins. And the judge of this contest was just one person. It was the king himself. It was King Ahasuerus. And the one who pleased him the most, she would be declared the winner. She would be declared the new queen. Well, that's one snapshot, a snapshot of a life without the Lord. Let's see another snapshot. We find next a life within Medo-Persia. Life within Medo-Persia, verses 5 through 7. Now, for the first time in this book, we're going to meet the lady who the book is named after, Esther herself. And this is a snapshot of life within the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's a snapshot of just two individuals. It's a snapshot of uh, what we could probably call two commoners, Mordecai and Esther. Notice verse five, please. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew. Might want to mark that a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who'd been captured with Jeconai, king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. That is Esther. Same person. Two names. Hadassah, Esther. His uncle's daughter. What's that make her? His cousin, right? His uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. Now notice what it says next. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. 
When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, Mordecai was a Jew whose ancestors had been carried away captives. And for whatever reason, he had chosen to remain in Persia. He never chose to return back to Jerusalem. Though there were opportunities, the Bible tells us, he chose not to go for whatever reason. And he had adopted his younger cousin, Hadassah. Uh, That is her Hebrew name. We know her better by her Persian name, Esther. That's what the Bible calls her, Esther here. And we're told a little bit about Esther. We know that she was an orphan. So imagine that. She was an orphan. She She had neither father nor mother. We're told that she was lovely and beautiful. Let me give you that in modern vernacular. She was a knockout. She was absolutely drop dead gorgeous, period. I mean, she just was. It says she was lovely and beautiful. Uh, There's a picture there of tremendous beauty. And that last part of information is very important because it's going to play a part as we continue seeing the story play out. So we have a snapshot of a life without the Lord. We have a snapshot of life within Medo-Persia, at least two people within the kingdom. Well, notice next, there's a snapshot given here in chapter two of life within the palace, life within the palace. Now, we're going to get a very specific part of the palace where the women were kept. And we're going to see what life was like in a sense where the women were. Look at chapter two, verse eight. Now, here's a very difficult verse. Chapter two, verse eight. So it was when the king's command decree was heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel under the custody of a guy that, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of a guy, the custodian of the women. Now, the big question of many people when they get to this part of the story is this. Did Esther go willingly or did she go against her will? Did she go willingly or did she go against her will? And if truth be known, short answer, we just don't know. We could spend a lot of time debating it and discussing it. I read a bunch of ink on paper this past week that tries to come to the end of this and say yes or no. But the fact of the matter is we just do not know. I'm inclined. This is my own personal thoughts on it. I'm inclined to think that while she went, she didn't volunteer. There are those who think, well, Mordecai volunteered her. Maybe some, I don't know, that think maybe she went on her own. Now, imagine this scene playing out. Put yourself in the sandals of these precious people. Think about your beautiful daughter. Think about your granddaughter. Think about that she's going to be gathered up and taken to the king's palace for one reason. To go through a plan of beautification treatments and then to go and have sexual relations with the king with a very slim chance That if she pleases him above everybody else, she'll be made queen. But if she doesn't do that, then she'll be carted off. She won't be brought home. She won't be released. She'll be taken from the king's presence and placed with the rest of his concubines to live out her life there. Just hoping maybe the king will call her sometime. But if not, she'll live there with the rest of the concubines for whatever period of time the king chooses. Now, some may have jumped at the chance of that. They say, hey, I've got a chance that I might become the queen. But I imagine others, they probably went kicking and screaming to think about this. Moms and dads, grandparents, think about your daughters. Think about your granddaughters. Think about the situation. Does it not even break your heart to even think about such a thing? But that was life within the palace, life within the kingdom. This is a monarchy, not a democracy. This is not America we're reading about here. Now, I know this is abhorrent for us to read this, but remember what's going on. In fact, you say, well, I wish I had boys then and not girls. Well, listen to what one writer said. 
This herding of virgins offends our modern sensibilities. And feminist critics especially see it as a demeaning and sexist affront to women that the biblical author should have denounced. But listen, Herodias also reports that about 500 young boys were gathered each year and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. One might argue that young women actually got the better deal. I'm sure all the boys would. Uh, The gathering of the virgins, whether consensual or not, is not sexism. It is a brutal act typical of how power was used in the Persian court. Everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. It didn't matter if you were male or female. Whatever the king said, whatever the king wanted, the king got. And so I'm inclined to think that she went, but she didn't volunteer. And I have a hard time. I wrestle with those who say, well, well, Mordecai volunteered her. I'm not so sure. I think we see some more of that later in the passage. But think about this. There are still places, beloved, where people in our world today, there are still places in our world where people are simply viewed as possessions and they're used and thrown away as desired. Now, think about that. We're talking about the sanctity of human life today. We're talking about the value of life. Should we not cry out to God on behalf of those who do not enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy and the circumstances we enjoy and the wonderful things that we have in our lives? To think about those who are used and thrown away as pieces of possession of someone. Should we not praise them for our freedoms and our circumstances today? Well, you know what? There's something about Esther that just brought her favor. Whether she went willingly or kicking and screaming, whether she wanted to go or didn't go, whether she just humbly, submissively went, not wanting to go in her own heart. There's something about her that brought favor. Look at verse nine. Now, the young woman, this is Esther, pleased him. That's Haggai, the custodian of the women. She pleased him and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Now, there's a lot of disagreement today and a lot of discussion about where Esther and Mordecai were spiritually. Where were they at spiritually? Where were they at with the Lord in their lives? I mean, Esther is not like Daniel and his three friends. You know, when Daniel and them were taken off, uh, they purposed in their heart not to defile themselves and they didn't want to eat the food the king provided. But more than likely, Esther, she ate non-kosher foods. Uh, she's going to commit adultery. She's going to ultimately marry a pagan here. And in verse 10 says this, Esther had not revealed her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Don't tell him that you're a Jew. Don't tell him that we're Jewish people. Did he tell her that because of her safety? Was there so much uh, uh, hatred for the Jews even in that place? Possibly. So he said, for your safety, don't reveal that you're a Jew. Or and some say, no, he did it because he, he wanted her to get ahead in the contest. He didn't want to hinder her. We just don't know exactly, beloved. But we do know verse 11 says every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. I see a worried man there pacing back and forth. And it's one of the reasons I believe that she might have been taken by force. That he didn't volunteer, she didn't volunteer, but because she was, I'm sure her beauty was well known. People know where the good looking girls live, right? And word gets out and they take her to the palace. He says, don't reveal that you're a Jew. Let's pick up the story, verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus. 
after she completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women. Twelve months now, for thus were the days of their preparation appointed. Here's how they beautified themselves. They're already gorgeous. They're going to make themselves even more beautiful, prepare themselves to go into this wicked king. Six months with oil and myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. I read a lot this past week and it actually talks about they actually fumigated themselves, you know, trying to just fill themselves with these beautification uh, treatments. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening, she went and in the morning, she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. Please get the picture. She went in a virgin and came out a concubine. Okay. She went into virgin, came out of concubine, and the one lady, the one young lady that pleased him the most, will be made queen. Twelve months of beauty preparations. One old preacher, man, one old preacher said, if your wife takes a few hours in the beauty salon, you ought not to complain. These girls took 12 months. I mean, it was just a long time of getting themselves ready. But what a sad thing. One night with the king and then all but one, the rest of their life, concubines. What did they lose? They lost their virginity. They lost their freedom, certainly for many a loss of dignity. And then came the month of Tibet. By the way, that lines up with our December and January. This time of the year that we're in right now, it came time for Esther, Hadassah, to go into the king. Verse 15. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch and custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. By the way, I don't think that's coincidence. I think that's providence. God gave favor to her with the custodian. God gave favor with all. Can you imagine? I was trying to picture this in my mind. Can you imagine all these women? I mean, I've never been... In, in a, a beauty contest, obviously, I've never been to a, I don't think I've ever been to a beauty contest. But, you know, imagine backstage. I mean, there's some real desire there to win these things and to be that. And, and I, I just can't imagine what life would have been like. You know, I, I survived high school. We know how high school girls are. So anyway, uh, you know, I just wonder here. But I keep going before I get myself in trouble. Verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet. That's our December, January in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther. For all his officials and servants that he proclaimed a holiday into the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Well, the winner of the Miss Persia contest has been announced, thankfully not by Steve Harvey. Uh, but the uh, the winner here uh, is Esther. Esther has won the title of Miss Persia and she is crowned king, a queen uh, of uh, the kingdom. Now, what do we do with all this? I mean, obviously, Esther didn't stay up all night playing Monopoly with King Ahasuerus. Um, that's not what went on. Uh, she says they went in the night, left in the morning. 
Shouldn't she have given up her life rather than dishonor God in this way? Shouldn't she have refused this? Shouldn't she have been willing to be put to death because of this? Now, again, I say all that to remind you that it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. It's easy to sit back and say what they should have done and shouldn't have done. But I love what Karen Jobes wrote. She said Esther may have looked back on this episode of her life with shame and regret. Or she may have looked back on it with a clear conscience, knowing that she acted as wisely as she knew how at the time. Don't don't miss this last part. In either case, every one of us also has kinds of episodes in our own lives. Esther's story shows that we can entrust them to the Lord and move on. Aren't those refreshing words? Trust them to the Lord and move on. Those are healing words. We all have a past, do we not? All of us in our lives, we have regrets. There are things we look on in our life and we look back and we say, well, if I could travel back in time, if I could make a different decision, if I could have done things differently. But beloved, we can't. And so what we have to do is repent and trust in the Lord and move on. And find that healing. And find that peace in giving those things to Jesus. There's one more snapshot that we dare not miss in all this. And it's a snapshot. Remember, just a snapshot of life under the providence of God. Life under the providence of God. All of us live here, by the way. Though he's not mentioned in this Bible, in this uh, section of the Bible, in the book of Esther, uh, perhaps ignored and disobeyed and dishonored. God is still working on behalf of his people here. It's no coincidence that Esther found favor wherever she went. It's no coincidence that she was uh, chosen as queen. It's not coincidence, it's providence. It's it's God working all things out for his will and his honor and his glory. I I love what one author said about Esther. They said, we serve a God who designs our deliverance before man can begin to devise our destruction. Think about that. We serve a God who designs our deliverance before man can begin to devise our destruction. Though Mordecai and Esther did not know it, And the Jewish people did not know it. Danger was coming. In fact, we go to the very next chapter, chapter three. There's going to appear one on the scene who decided to do away with God's people to wipe out the Jews. But God is not caught off guard. God is not surprised. He's already made preparation. He's placed Esther as queen upon the throne. And there she is, though she doesn't know it. Providentially, she's there as queen. And God is going to use her to preserve his people and to preserve his promises and to preserve the line that would ultimately bring out the savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, the exciting thing about it is Esther's God. Is our God. And he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And our God is still on the throne and he rules and he reigns and he is God and God alone forever. Blessed be his holy name. He's still alive. He's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He is God alone. Would you bow your head and close your eyes in these last few moments together? I've shown you four snapshots from this passage of Scripture. The first one was a life without the Lord. Maybe that's a picture of your life today. 
Maybe you're seeking to find satisfaction and purpose and all these things in all kinds of places and maybe even some kinds of people. But friend, it's only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ alone is forgiveness. In Christ alone is peace. I would invite you today, if you've never met him as your own Lord and Savior, to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. In a moment, we're going to sing. And as we do, I'm going to be standing down front. I'd love to welcome you today. Say, preacher, what will you do when you welcome me? I'll welcome you and I'll put you with someone who will take a Bible and lead you to the cross. And you'll find forgiveness and peace there. Then I'm thinking about many in this room who maybe you're living with those regrets. And you're looking back upon your life and you're talking about what if or I should have, I shouldn't have. I'd make this change. I'd do this. I'd do that. Well, friend, we can't go back in time. We can't undo all that's already happened. Will you not give that to Jesus? Repent of it if you haven't already. And then trust it to him and move on. Move on in his grace. Move on in his love. Move on in his peace. Rest. We don't know about Esther. We don't know exactly what through her mind when she looked back upon this scene. But we know she didn't let it hinder her from standing boldly for the Lord. And we'll see that later in our study. Please, friend, don't let it keep you from living for the Lord and standing for maybe today you need to come and kneel at this altar and leave those regrets and leave those things that have been haunting your footsteps for maybe years, maybe decades. Leave them with the Lord and move on. I would encourage you to do that today. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you, Lord, that when you paint a picture of these men and women in the Bible, you paint it warts and all. That's an encouragement to us. Lord, we know that there are no perfect humans that you deal with. The only perfect one is the God man. But Lord, in your love. In your mercy and grace, you created us. And Lord, as we repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ, you saved us. And Lord, even our imperfections and our failings and our fumblings and our falling, you love us and you hold us. And you welcome us back into your loving embrace. And Father, I pray today, if anybody's here that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that your Holy Spirit will convict their heart. And bring them to saving faith. And then, Father, I'm burdened as well for those that are here today. They're carrying burdens and regrets from years and years and years. Lord, would you move them today to lay those at the foot of the cross. Trust them to you. And then move on. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our closing hymn is 309. Lord, I'm coming home. You need to be saved. I'll be right down front. I'd love to welcome you today and lead you to Christ. Put you someone to lead you to Christ. And that if you need to come and pray today for whatever the burden is between you and the Lord, you come do that as we stand and sing 309. Lord, I'm coming home. Let's stand and sing. Mm-hmm.